to be a Christian is like stained glass windows. If you're on the outside, you don't get them. You, you see some vague, dark colors, vague shapes. It's only when you're on the inside and see the sun rays going through them that you understand, oh my goodness, this is of insurpassable beauty. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to Every Knee Shall Bow, your seasonal Catholic podcast on evangelization. This is Mike Gomer Gormley, and I am joined today by Dave, Mission of the Redeemer himself, Van Vickle. How you doing, Dave? Uh, I'm great. I, I I did not sleep at all last night, did you? I, I did not sleep at all. Are you serious? I was miserable last night. Why? Tell I don't I don't sleep well in hotel beds. Me neither. No, neither do I. Huh, did we just become best friends? No, well, we already I mean, were. That was a long time ago. We already were. Uh, yeah, no, me and my wife, it's so awesome because we have a room for our kids. And this was the first time where the boys weren't with daddy and, the gir- and mommy with the girls, right? So we let them all have their own room. And they were so Kateri, Kateri has a cell phone now. It's a little Nokia flip phone. Yeah. Guess what? It has Snake on it. You remember that game? No, Snake? yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. I remember, yeah. So she has T9 text. She's like, Dad, how do I text? And I was like, You tap the two button three times to get to the letter C. Yeah. And she's like, This is this is crazy. And I was like, This is awesome. <laughs> so she has that. So she had that with her, you know, bolt, deadbolt the thing, put the latch lock on there, go to they were out. My son Thomas, you know how crazy he was being at dinner last night? My son Thomas was out in less than two minutes when he <laughs> when he laid down in bed. Out like a light, and he woke up the last. It was awesome. Awesome, awesome. I, unfortunately, did not sleep like him. Yeah. I, I just tossed and turned all I night I literally long. was up all night. Yeah, finally, I just got up. Yeah? Did you jazzercise in the, in the <laughs> sunlight? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. No, Karate kicks out in the middle of Steubenville. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I got my leotard on. I'm ready to do public <laughs> yoga. You can no, film yourself for the TikToks. Yeah, that would be awesome. What if we did? One day you'll know that I'm retiring when I actually do the weird stuff that I say I wish I could do. Like what? I don't know. Like, you know, like, I don't know. Things, weird things like that. And I'll be like, I don't care anymore. Oh, you don't care anymore because yeah. you now are a multimillionaire. Yeah. And so that's not going to happen. But, no. uh, you have your money in a Cayman Island account that no one can touch. I get it. I get it. <laughs> that would be so awesome. awesome. <laughs> uh, the, uh, so we're continuing on with our we got our series. Our series here. I I love this. By the way, I had the best time recording yesterday with you. The best time? Yeah. It was, well, it's, it's more JP two than just being with me in your CD motel room. Yeah, but, hotel. But I do. Well, as I'm talking to you, I I don't imagine that it's you. I imagine that it's Pope John Paul II. Yeah, I look like him, <laughs> like the younger version. He's, right no you absolutely do he's he's a handsome guy he was and yeah, you and i are just not no we're cave trolls that's not our gift that's not our gift that's not my charism <laughs> <laughs> some people have a charism of evangelization through hotness yeah jp2 young jp2 what do they call him wojek wojek yeah something the like uncle that. i mean yeah. uncle in, in polish yeah but there's like the uh, epic picture you've seen that epic picture yes. where he's like dropped off by a helicopter to ski down a mountain no, I did not see that. I mean, that's that the awesome. kind of skiing he used to do, like where yeah. you had you could not get up without like like a helicopter head. That is awesome. And you know what gave him that love of the outdoors and outdoor exercise in particular was his older brother Edmund. Edmund was 14 years older than him and loved his little brother. They would go everywhere throughout the city together. And one of my favorite stories is they were so poor. I didn't realize how poor they were. They were so poor 
that they made a soccer ball out of yeah. like old scarves or something like that and shirts and they would go and kick the soccer ball all throughout town they would play games of soccer all the time we tell, shared the story last time about the catholics versus the jews but they would play this all the time and uh, his brother would always be seen like carrying yeah. uh carol on his shoulders and all this stuff he goes and becomes a doctor and at the age of 26 so he's 14 years older than than carol Voitia, at the age of 26 edmund dies because he contracts scarlet fever from one of his patients right. And because it's scarlet fever, it's highly contagious. He had to die alone in quarantine. So they were outside quarantine watching the father and son were watching his, you know, his brother die, his son die. And uh, they couldn't do anything. And so they were just praying constantly for him. And this is one of the things that I wanted to talk about. When we talk about the mystery of redemption being the source of the church's mission, JP2 was uh, forged in the in the furnace of suffering oh, in a very his whole life yeah right. by the age of 21 he was an orphan all of his siblings were dead uh and he was interned by the nazis in forced labor <laughs> like right. like this and then oh he's liberated uh, by the communists you know like nothing was easy for this man yet in the middle of it jason everett talks about he gave himself just like his father did when his wife died he gave himself so devoutly to prayer that his grief he's in, in like one of his biographies he said his grief and suffering led to a greater realization of the cross and resurrection of Jesus. And you see that throughout his whole papacy. Yeah. And, and yeah, not just, but also that he would continue to make himself suffer even after not living in, he was known for mortification. Yeah. Remember the scandal that came out after he died? I don't remember what well, the, the nuns who took care of his apartment said that he had a belt that he would take with him on, on retreat. And he would, he would flog disciplina. Yeah. Wow. And uh, it was just an old leather belt and people were really upset by this. Mm -hmm. You know, they were really upset, but it's clear that throughout all of his works, he, he louds the martyrs, right. As witnesses to truth, which we'll talk a little bit about, but it was clear, like in a world where we're being oppressed by ourselves, suffering is a martyrdom. And he was going to show people, you know, Mm. what that means, you know, what it's like. Yeah, Jason Everett says how deeply he was submerged in the culture of death, that that is what gave him his love for life. Right. And it was true. I mean, it was absolutely true. Um, But we're not here to talk about the five great loves of JP2 by Jason Everett. We're here to talk and finish our conversation today on the Redeemer of Man, Redemptor Hominus. What a wonderful and powerful encyclical. It makes me literally want to start a podcast where all I do is walk through every paragraph. Like it is it is beautiful and awesome. We are on the fourth and final chapter. This is paragraphs 18 to 22, and it'll wrap up our study today. This is the third of three episodes that we're doing here on Redeemer of Man. So here we are. We're going to dive into the church as concerned for man's vocation in Christ. That's paragraph 18. Dave, what stood out to you in this paragraph? So he's going to start talking about the Holy Spirit here and the role of the Holy Spirit uh, in in this section, this entire section. So I'm happy about that. But the the line that really stood out to me is... Let's that, see if it's the same one that I underlined. Well, we well, it's not in the first first little paragraph. Okay. It's, it's the beginning. It's the union of Christ with man is in itself a mystery. From this mystery is born the new man called to become partakers of God's life and newly created in Christ for the fullness of grace and truth. So like as far as, you know, yesterday we got into like a lot of social things like that, you know, the isms yeah. and how, how to solve these issues and r- human rights and things like that. It's clear that in his project or in his plan, the new man is how 
society is renewed, even politically, socially, yeah. all those places, right? Yeah, and for us as evangelists, like the mission of the church is concerned for man's vocation in Christ. That's what he's trying to get across. So we need to help people discover themselves, find themselves in Christ, and then we need to, by finding ourselves in Christ, need to help society be Christocentric, right? And right. what, yeah. Right, well, I, I think, and it, and this is gonna be a fundamental shift for a lot of people like us, because we did spend a lot of our evangelical fervor in the last, I don't know, couple decades on on more apologetics. Yeah. And and proving to people what's true. That's that's entirely different than a new way of life. It's yeah. entirely different. I'm not saying it was bad. And I'm not saying that we don't need need apologetics. We certainly do. Yeah. But what I'm saying is this is different. You know, this this is a more nuanced approach to evangelization than just teaching, right? It's teaching someone how to be a new man. Yeah. Yeah, and I think we lose sight of it. It's like playing baseball, like, or playing a sport. Like, you can tell someone the rules of the sport, but most people don't understand why would you be passionate about it? Well, it isn't until you play the game sure, yeah. at a certain yeah. level that you understand. Like, why are you passionate about becoming the strongest man in Pittsburgh? Vanity, vainglory, <laughs> pride, arrogance, all of those things. But there's this element, right? Like, it's funny because you have years of martial arts and, you know, all that experience. People don't get it when they are always on the outside looking in. Christianity is a life to be lived, right? Yeah. And so what we mean by that, Chesterton had this great phrase, again with the Chesterton. He had this great phrase that to be a Christian is like stained glass windows. If you're on the outside, you don't get them. You, you see some vague, dark colors, vague shapes. It's only when you're on the inside and see the sun rays going through them that you understand oh my goodness, this is of right. insurpassable beauty, right? And the same is true with the Christian life. Like, it's not just about winning arguments, although some people might have arguments. It's not just about overcoming objections, although those objections might be real. In the end, it's a radical newness of life. And if they don't see us living that, if they don't see the church, whatever people define as the church, living that, then our arguments become fake, right? Yeah, right. They can only go so far. Right, and... So that's why a lot of evangelization is going to be like, come and watch what our life is like. Yeah. Come if you actually read the right of RCIA, it says over and over again, which I used to, because I'm a nerd, just like roll my eyes at it's like, they need to have an experience of the Christian community. And I'll give you a couple examples of like being with families as they do stations of the cross or, you know, attending mass or other rites and rituals of the church. You know, I think of the pet blessing and stuff like that. Yeah, like, right, right. These are things now that we have father David as a parochial vicar, he's really into these big, big in church history, but kind of unknown in America feasts. Yeah. So we just did the bonfire of the nativity of, so of awesome. St. Uh, John the Baptist yeah. for our youth group. And it was epic. Yeah. And you had these 75 to a hundred people come families. We encourage families to do everything. And it's just amazing when you have like, what are you doing? You're doing a bonfire. We're burning sacred items that are like falling apart. Yeah. And uh, we're doing all this stuff and we're doing this bonfire. And it's like, why this bonfire? And it's like, well, let me tell you about St. John the Baptist, Yeah. right? But it's this unique experience, this lived experience, you know, that, that grew up in like France in the, right. like the 900s or something. Right. So it's like, this is cool, right? This is a, but this lived thing. So going from that, this is one of my favorite parts from this paragraph, this treasure of humanity enriched by the inexpressible mystery of, drum roll please, divine filiation. And by yeah. the grace of adoption as sons in the only son of God, 
through whom we call God Abba Father, is also a powerful force unifying the church above all inwardly and giving meaning to all our activity. One of the most uh, common emails I get personally is people who listen to our episode on divine filiation. Yeah. And they email me saying, can I please have the document? Because I took my whole parish staff, the last time I did a parish mission for my staff, parish retreat day, whatever, was on divine filiation. Because that's the gospel, right? What people think of as like, oh, Jesus saved us from hell. No, 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 no. Okay, that's half the truth. The whole sin management is half of it. The other side is to live for grace. Well, why do I get grace? So I can live the divine life. Why am I living the divine life? So I can be adopted into the Trinitarian family, right? That divine filiation. And so for him to say like that, the mystery of that divine filiation is a powerful force that unifies inwardly the church. And so when we think about this, we can't do this on our own. We can't do this by our good works. We need, and this is where he brings in the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the spirit of adoption. The powers, the gifts, the fruits of the spirit are revealed in us for this divine filiation. And that's why he has this great line where he says, this appeal to the spirit intended precisely to obtain the spirit is the answer to all the materialisms of our age. It is these materialisms that give birth to so many forms of insatiability in the human heart, right? <laughs> oh, man, so awesome. Right, isn't that a great, like, like, you can see this, like, with all the hashtags and all the marches and all the all the things that we do, there is a certain thing where it's like, but we're not getting to the goal. Like, like there's this, right. even Absolutely. with the triumph of Roe v. Wade, there's like, yeah, but it's, it's not enough. It's still, no. there's still an, uh, uh, what did it say, an insatiability. Like, right. more still has to be done, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. hearts and minds. Right. Hearts and minds. Can can I jump back for a minute and point out something to evangelists? Oh, please do. This is a flowing conversation, brother. (laughs) Please do. Something that really I I took this and I wrote it in my personal notebook that I carry everywhere with me because I think like I want to remember this. Is it your dream journal? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Dear, dear diary. Um, He talks about, you know, the words of St. Augustine that we all know. You made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. But then he says this interesting line. He says, in this creative restlessness beats and pulsates what is most deeply human, okay? And then he gives this list. The search for truth, the insatiable need for the good, hunger for freedom, nostalgia for the beautiful, and the voice of conscience. I am pretty sure if I went back to young Dave, who is trying to work for the church and evangelize, which is not always the same thing. Okay. Yeah. If I could go back, I might try to design my entire program based on those those needs, right? Those read deeply, those again. Read those again. Yeah. Uh, the search for truth, the insatiable need for the good, kind of what you just said. Okay. Hunger for freedom, nostalgia for the beautiful, and the voice of conscience. Isn't that awesome? Yeah. Like those lists. I mean, I guess I guess if you're an evangelist, and maybe this. Maybe you're like, duh, Dave, like, don't be an idiot. Okay. But I guess if you're an evangelist and you're wondering like, what, what do I give to a human that they want? These are things that are deep, deeply, naturally human. And if you can speak to these deep needs, even if they don't express it, like the heart opens up with this kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah, and Vatican II really emphasized the threefold office of Christ as priest, prophet, and king. And that's where you could say that that's the interpretive key of this entire document. He wants to open that up. And so that's where we now focus. Um, at the end of 18, 
he sets up the rest of paragraphs 19 through 22. He says, for when we become aware that we share in Christ's triple mission, his triple office as priest, as prophet, and as king, we also become more aware of what must receive service from the whole of the church as the society and community of the people of God on earth. And we likewise understand how each of us must share in this mission and service. So the more you grow into your office of priest, prophet, and king, of all of God's people, of all the people of God, we become more aware of where we need to serve. We become more aware of where we need to place our devotion, our ministry, our ministry, all of that stuff, not only within the church, but also to society at large. And so your purpose, people, is to start discerning priest, prophet, and king, like start discerning again and again, like where is a new place that I can step out in service, right? Oftentimes, I love this this quote from a priest. Actually, I hate this quote from a priest because it's so convicting, but he said, if you say you wish to serve the church, but you only do so for things that appeal to you on your time, right. you know, that account to your talent, that's not service, that's a hobby. And I remember hearing that and being really convicted like, okay, so what's the alternative? What do I do? And he said, you go to your priest and you say, this is my skills. This is what, what I bring. Do I oh. Where do you need me? Oh, that's scary. That is very scary. What if they like made me a reader? I would I would have to leave the church. <laughs> or like participate in some weird way at mass. I can't do it. I want to sit in the last row, be quiet and anonymous, and not participate in any special ways. Like Full that. conscious and active participation in the pew, not up in front of well, everyone. Well, I, I love what you just said because, you know, uh, people – People always say, like, you're not an introvert. And it's the truth is, I really struggle. It's it's a major struggle for me because I want to evangelize. Yeah. I and it's I'm not comfortable with it. You know what I mean? And I I would prefer to kind of just be alone, you know, and it's not, it's not, and it's not like a snobby thing, although you may say it is, but uh it's really more of just like I I wanna I want to be able to count encounter people the way we're supposed to. So I totally, I think the more that I've tried to stretch myself, the more fruit I've seen. So I agree mm. with you hundred percent. And that priest. Yeah. And I am an extrovert oh and my. I love yeah. people. Yeah. As if anyone was Earth. wondering that yeah, that's on, a good point. on earth, <laughs> the satellites know you're an extrovert. The sa- <laughs> that's why they film me all the time. <laughs> that I'm because of my crazy conspiracy theories. Okay. <laughs> Paragraph 19, the church as responsible for truth. Okay. So this is where we get into the prophetic office. And JP2 wants to understand the church, meaning his role as the Pope, the magisterium, but also theologians. And he really drives home theologians have a serious duty to be formed and to walk with the magisterium. And then also priests and bishops in disseminating the truth. We have to do it prophetically and then laity. So he walks us through this because if we're going to be proclaiming the gospel into a culture that is bent on, you know, worshiping its various isms, its manifold materialisms, we are going to have a huge problem because people don't want to hear that. People don't want to hear that your idol is dumb and mute and cannot actually save, right? right? It's deaf, dumb, and mute. It cannot actually save you. And it does not bring fulfillment. People don't want that because they've dedicated their entire lives to their idols. And so our goal is to smash their idols. Really, our goal is to get them to smash their idols, yeah, right. which is a totally different thing. What Generally speaking, when you smash other people's idols, it doesn't go so well, does it? Um, so here's a great quote um, that we can start off with. This paragraph, okay, you got to understand, when we say paragraph, this is like, maybe three pages of like, if you were to copy and paste into a word document, it's like three pages long. So 
when I was just pulling out great quotes, <laughs> it's a page and a half. Gomer. Yes. Yeah. So yeah, I want to nuance what you just said. Uh Oh, here we go. No, no. I, I, I agree with what you said. We want to get them to smash their idols. And, but what I do want to say is a lot, a lot of times, and you keep quoting GK Chesterton uh-huh. and I want you to love him and learn him. But if you become a GK Chesterton person, then we're not going to be friends anymore. Oh man. Because that's all they ever talk about. It's but, true. It's true. But I think I'm willing to pay that price. The reason, G- <laughs> the reason GK Chesterton was so incredible was because he did smash. I mean, sometimes you have to smash the idols. So that they can themselves. Okay. And I think what you were saying earlier about Roe versus Wade, how it's like, it's not enough. Yeah. We smash that idol nationally in a certain sense. Mm -hmm. And now we need to get everyone to smash it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I'll go with that. Okay. All right. GKHS. Little King Josiah smashing the. the Yeah. Yeah, baby. Pillars of whatever that demon gods are so uh (laughs) anywho back to my awesome money quote gosh i said it again money quote oh what is wrong with me the same fidelity must be a (laughs) constitutive quality oh you you underline this one too the same fidelity must be a constitutive quality of the church's faith both when she is teaching it and when she is professing it okay that's a key i love that distinction like you're teaching a faith but also in professing it you need to Faith as a specific supernatural virtue infused into the human spirit makes us sharers in knowledge of God as a response to his revealed word. Therefore, it is required when the church professes and teaches the faith that she should adhere strictly to divine truth and should translate it into living attitudes of obedience and harmony with reason. Oh my gosh, that that quote is so awesome. Yeah, that should be above every theologian's office door at the local university, right? Yeah. Like, I mean, come on. So, I mean, well, why don't we just mention that? I mean, that that's a major problem of, yeah. it's a major crisis of truth in the church right now. Yeah. Our Catholic universities, like uh, it's a stumbling point yeah. for many people. I don't know if people realize that most theology programs at most Catholic universities in America are chaired by non-Catholics. Yeah. Uh, I think most people would probably be shocked to learn that most theology programs w- would be probably a minority of the professors would believe in the actual resurrection. Yeah. So we're in a bad situation. Mm-hmm. This is basically, we're basically in the opposite situation of what JP2 talks about. And he'll continue this throughout his pontificate. Uh, he'll target universities and, and make it a project of his uh, when he releases the document. Um, Oh, what was that document? Darn. Ecclesia something, yeah, right? Yeah, Ecclesia yeah. something. And we talk about it so much because at Franciscan, they right. were the first university. What was that document? Ecclesia remember. Day? No. No. No, that's it. Yeah, that's no. the Latin mass, guys. But the, um, the oh, uh, Cordae, Ex Cordae Ecclesia. From the heart of the church, the Pope wrote this letter basically saying universities need to take oaths of fidelity to the magisterium and need to teach in accordance. You know, you have academic freedom, but that still doesn't mean you deny the faith. Right. And just going back to the apologetics thing, like if you watch apologetics from the evangelical or the Protestant side or the reform side, um, often what they do is they take the liberal theologians from Catholic 
institutes and no, they use that really? against oh yeah they're like here's trent horn saying blah 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 or patrick madrid saying blah 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 but what the theologians teach is completely different oh wow. and they'll go through quote after quote of people like raymond brown and uh <sighs> you know and you know there's some good with raymond brown there's some awful yeah, with raymond well, brown. as with everybody yeah, yeah right. but uh yikes and so they use this so this is what the pope is saying like listen in teaching the faith it's the same as professing it. Yeah. Like we need to have an obedience in harmony with reason. I love that quote. Being responsible for that truth also means loving it and seeking the most exact understanding of it in order to bring it closer to ourselves and others in all its saving power, its splendor and its profundity joined with simplicity. I think this is my this this paragraph might be the most difficult part for most evangelists because yeah. it is kind of saying like you can't be slouches in theology yeah and you're you're not really allowed to be you know yeah. you you you're supposed to you're supposed to have a faith that tends towards understanding you know and so uh this is this is hard i think i think what people need to understand is that you can learn some things you can learn apologetics you can learn kind of like a baltimore catechism style but for modern man it's not going to be enough it's just not going to be enough so when we look at theology through the lens of Christ's prophetic office, he says, therefore, when theologians as servants of divine truth dedicate their studies and labors to ever deeper understanding of that truth, they can never lose sight of the meaning of their service in the church, which is enshrined in the concept intellectus fidei, right? I understand so that I may believe, right? So this idea of following along, I... It is shocking to me how often theologians ruin the church, ruin the church oh, yeah. because they're creating their own personal version of revelation. So what's the difference between Christianity and, you know, another pagan religion? Well, those are religions and religions can be very good or they can be very bad. They can be more or less demonic. They can be all this stuff, share more or less truth, good and beautiness, uh, truth, good and beautiness, truth, beauty, beautiness. and goodness, <laughs> beautiness, lots of beauty, yeah, lots of beauty. But the difference is it's not a faith. We use faith and religion synonymously, right. but faith is a response to the God who reveals himself. So we have this thing called revelation. Christianity is predicated on the God of the universe revealing himself to us. And if that is what we predicate ourselves on, then that means that we don't get to tinker with revelation. God is God is unveiling himself and we're going to edit God? No, no, no. What we do is we plunge into the mystery of what God has revealed. That's what theology is. And it's shaping that revelation so that modern man can hear, so that medieval man can hear. But the problem is for the first 1,100 years of the church, theology was done in monasteries. Yeah. AKA by men and women who are praying. And it was the fruit of their Letio Divina. It was the fruit of their scripture study. It was the fruit of their prayer life. Right. And, it, and, there, and there also was not a separation between theology and philosophy at all. Right. And, and then that, and that we have big... the rise of the schoolmen, the scholastics. Right. Right. That's why they're called this, is because then theology shifted from monastery to university. Now, of course, it shifted with people like St. Albert the Great, St. Thomas Aquinas, St. Bonaventure, Blessed Duns Scotus, uh, just the Blessed Franciscans. Um, so <laughs> in all of this, we have a major shift that, well, hopefully, it was still done from religious orders. So it's still a part of the contemplation sharing of the fruit of contemplation 
but it becomes more and more academic as the centuries go on. And as the universities become secular, Dr. Han actually wrote a book on this called The Decline and Fall of Sacred I, Scripture. I just finished it. And it's Such fantastic. a good book. It yeah. really is a fantastic book. Right. All that John Huss, John Wycliffe stuff blew my mind. But uh, he was talking about like the Bible is no longer regarded as the Bible, as the word of God written down, you know, it is regarded as just another book with its agendas and its politics, and it's going to be criticized and all this stuff. And there are just as many Catholics, quote unquote, Catholic scholars who are on that train, right? Turning the Bible into a secular book. Well, there, well, yeah, there, there are more for sure yeah. to be certain Yeah. now. Well, I, I, I want to just, you know, kind of bring it down to earth and just say that what the Pope is saying here is, the prophetic office for a theologian is to meditate on the word as the word of God and to find ways to express it more clearly to the, the historical context of man. Yeah. You know? I want to throw out two more quotes and then we can move on or three more. One, this is what I underline. Here's his word to theologians. The word which you hear is not mine, but the father's who sent me. Jesus said that and JP two reflects nobody therefore can make of theology as if it were a simple collection of his own personal ideas, but everybody must be aware of being in close union with the mission of teaching truth for which the church is responsible. So that's part one. Part two, catechesis certainly constitutes a permanent and also fundamental form of activity by the church, one in which her prophetic charism is manifested. Witnessing and teaching go hand in hand. So carve that on your hearts, everyone who's a DRE, yeah. a priest, a catechist. And lastly, furthermore, increasing care must be taken that the various forms of catechesis and its various fields, beginning with a fundamental field, family catechesis, that is that is the catechesis by parents of their children should give evidence of the universal sharing by the whole people of God in the prophetic office of Christ himself. Parents, you are prophets. Do not forsake your prophetic office. Don't become false prophets by dropping your kids off at the church. You're called to be prophets. All right. The next paragraph is epic. It's almost too much. I told my wife, who's the interim coordinator of First Holy Communion, First uh, Reconciliation, I said, you just need to copy this, paste it into a Word document, blow it up real big, and just put it in your, in your office and just read this. So now we turn. He wants to apply the prophetic office. Now we're going to the priestly office of understanding how Christ's mission is manifested sacramentally. Right. This is the, this is the culmination of the entire document. Yeah. Uh, the the paragraphs entitled Eucharist and Eucharist and penance, and this will be uh, the end for him of what Christ is trying to yeah. do for man, or what Christ does for man and our proper response. Yeah. So when you talk about the mystery of redemption, he says, in the power of his redeeming action, expressed and enshrined by him in a sacramental form, especially in the Eucharist. So this is what the church does. She gives us the, remember that first line from the like opening paragraphs, which is the church exists in the sphere of redemption. So this is the sphere of redemption that actually gives the church her being. That is the Eucharist for by Christ's will, there is in this sacrament, a continual renewing of the mystery of the sacrifice of himself that Christ offered to the father on the altar of the cross a sacrifice that the father accepted giving in return for this total self-giving by the son who became obedient unto death, his own paternal gift. That is to say the grant of new immortal life in the resurrection 
since the father is the first source and the giver of life from the beginning. That new life, which involves, I love this phrase, the bodily glorification of the crucified Christ became an efficacious sign of the new gift gift granted to humanity. Efficacious means it does what it symbolizes. Right, so an efficacious sign is a sign that actually brings about the very thing that it's signifying. And that's what the sacraments are. So without the glorified, resurrected, risen Lord, without the crucifixion and the resurrection, there are no sacraments. But with that, the resurrected flesh of Christ becomes the efficacious sign of this new gift, an outpouring of the Holy Spirit through the sacraments. So what we want to look at especially those who work for the church, is how Eucharistic is your ministry? Yeah. How Eucharistic is your parish? I know that's a strange thing to say, but the truth is, is that parishes concern themselves with a lot of things that are not Eucharistic. Yeah. And he says it is an essential truth, not only of doctrine, but also of life that the Eucharist builds the church, building it as the authentic community of the people of God, as the assembly of the faithful, bearing the same mark of unity that was shared by the apostles and the first disciples of the Lord. The Eucharist builds ever anew this community and unity, ever building and regenerating it on the basis of the sacrifice of Christ, since it commemorates his death on the cross. I I have made the mistake, and I've seen countless evangelists make the mistake, of waiting to evangelize someone for the, about the Eucharist of yeah. waiting, of keeping it in the background, thinking it's too much for them to accept. Yeah, I just recently had a, a frustrating conversation with, with uh, someone who was coming for prayer, and I, I was saying to this person, every time the priest talks to you about Jesus Christ being actually present in the body, blood, you know, body, blood, soul, and divinity in the Eucharist, you get visibly flustered and upset. And I was saying to this person, like, we don't have anything else to offer you because that's the culmination of everything. It's the fullness. It's the, it's the source and the summit. So I, I don't know why you come to the Catholics if you can't at least try try your best to get on board with what we believe about this. Yeah. And it's kind of like when you wait to be a Eucharistic evangelist, it's like you're saving the best secretly for some reason. And, and, and there's no reason to do that. You mm-hmm. know, I, I, I want to always ask myself, is my evangelization centered around the Eucharistic Lord? So I would say in terms of my ministry running this group called Inclusion, which sometimes I would have three times a year, usually it's twice a year. Now it's just once a year because COVID took all all my employees away. But I run this and it's for Protestants who wanna become Catholic. And I would say nine times out of 10, it's the liturgy or the theology of the Eucharist that is drawing them into the Catholic church. They'll say like, I I believe in the Eucharist. I want that. I'm willing to do whatever it takes to get that. Even if it means uh, going along with this whole Mary stuff, right? Like they're still like iffy about Mary, but they're all about the Eucharist. And so I love this. This kind of speaks to our age. The Eucharist cannot be treated merely as an occasion for manifesting this brotherhood. So when we downplay the sacrifice of the mass and we disproportionately upplay the communal meal, the communal sacred meal aspect, that's when we're we're actually going into a wrong, we're denying the sign value of his death, right? So Jesus offers himself once 
for all. He is a man for others, as every Jesuit school talks about. He is a man for others. And it is in the Eucharistic sacrifice, this sacrificial memorial that we're offering, that makes us brothers, right? That unites us in, in Christ. But what we constantly do in this modern world, post-Vatican II, is we, you know, put the church in the round. We do all these things. We we edit our conversations to make it seem like this is just a family meal, that and that's it. And he says, when celebrating the sacrament of the body and blood of the Lord, the full magnitude of the divine mystery must be respected. That is the sacrificial nature. What happened on the cross 2,000 years ago is being represented to us today. And when we soften that, deny that, we actually rob it of its efficaciousness. Yeah, and, and therefore robbing the church of what it is. Yeah. It, it, it builds the church. It gives life to the church. This is, this is for this is why he came. Yeah. And this is why messing around with the liturgy is dumb because most people do not have the entire history of the church's liturgy in their heads when they remove something time for another Chesterton quote. There's a great line. Oh my gosh. You are We're becoming a We're Chesterton. We're doing uh, Chesterton says, uh, <laughs> well, actually, uh, no, there's this famous thing called Chesterton's fence. And it's actually entered into oh, the public sure. vocabulary. Yeah. Yeah. But right. two men are walking along. They see a low hanging or a low uh, built wall made of rock. And then they don't understand why it's there. They don't know anything about it. The one man says, we must tear this down for we don't know why it's here in the first place. And the other one says, we can't tear it down because we don't know why it's here in the first place. Yeah. Right. And so his great comment was, we don't know what we're doing because we don't know what we're undoing. I would say that describes the liturgical, what Pope Problems. Francis calls the wild creativity that people have abused the sacred liturgy with, right? Like we're doing all this stuff to make people feel good and feel this, and we're borrowing all this from evangelical churches, and we're messing with the liturgy. So if you think I'm just pulling this out of thin air or whatever, literally the very next statement of JP2 is, this is the source of the duty to carry out rigorously the liturgical rules and everything that is a manifestation of community worship offered to God himself. All the more so because in this sacramental sign, he entrusts himself to us with limitless trust. As if not taking into consideration our human weaknesses, our unworthiness, the force of habit, routine, or even the possibility of insult. Do you see is, what he's saying? Is that? I, yeah, I see what he's saying. And I, it, it is a daily meditation of mine, the limitless trust. That he gives in, to, of himself in the Eucharist. I mean, think about that. Yeah. Think about the fact that you could spit at the Eucharist and you're not going to get struck by lightning, probably. You know, yeah. you could curse at it and you're not going to get swallowed up into the earth. Only a God who is love would, would put himself in that vulnerable situation. Yeah. And it is, it is so evangelistic because it is a, it's an uncalculable vulnerability that the God of the universe would put himself into a tiny white host to be abused by us. Why? Because... He wants to come close to us. Yeah. So and this is why the Eucharist is, is inexpressible richness. You can sit there and contemplate the face of the God who desires to be with us, among us, right? To be here with us, Emmanuel, God with us. And he does it in the most extraordinary way where he becomes our very nourishment. How can we not evangelize about this God who loves us to this level? And so priests out there, you, it is your duty 
to carry out rigorously the liturgical rules and everything that is a manifestation of community worship because it's not devotion. Quit making it look like the people. It's not devotion. Devotions are important. Devotions look like me, right? I have my own Marian devotions. I prefer the scriptural rosary to just the plain rosary. Like that is what moves my heart more. Okay, great. St. Teresa of Avila. If this prayer form works, stick with it. If it doesn't leave it, like move on, right? That's what devotions do. But liturgy, liturgy is public worship, right? Right. This is not something that we get to tinker with, right? We don't form it. It forms us. Yeah. And so going right into this, the Eucharist and penance thus become in a sense, too closely connected dimensions of authentic life in accordance with the spirit of the gospel of truly Christian life. The Christ who calls to the Eucharistic banquet is also the same Christ who exhorts us to, to penance and repeats his repent. So this is important. This is why when St. Paul in first Corinthians chapter 10 lays out beautiful statements about the Eucharist is the bread, which we break, not a participation in the body of Christ is a cup that we drink. The chalice that we drink, is it not a participation or sharing in the blood of Christ? And then in first Corinthians chapter 11, verses 27 to 29, which my parochial vicar, father David us says all the time in every homily, basically do not eat and drink the body and blood of our Lord in an unworthy manner. You must examine yourself before, or you will be eating and drinking judgment upon yourself. And if that sounds harsh, that's St. Paul and JP2 quotes him here. And that's why he's saying, before I receive the Eucharist, I must live this life penance. of penance, repent, repent, repent. It's a, it's a perfectly natural human response that God presents himself to us, gives us, gives us himself that we have a response of trying to be yeah. somewhat worthy of that you know yeah. i mean it, it's not going to work but we we're supposed to try and with his grace we can't um you ever been to a penance service that was like shady oh yeah totally but, yeah dude i lived in buffalo new york that they, they regularly did penance services where <laughs> i was actually at one one time <laughs> where the guy said we there's way too many people here so we're gonna give absolution to everyone, and then if you're in mortal sin, just come to the individuals for confession. So, any, so anyone who anyone who went to confession yeah. is publicly admitting, right? I'm yeah. in mortal Isn't sin. Is that funny? Yeah, that's horrific. That's horrific. This is how we don't zealously or rigorously guard the sacrament. So this is what the Pope is saying: We cannot, however, forget that conversion is a particularly profound inward act in which the individual cannot be replaced by others and cannot make the community be a substitute for him. <laughs> Although the participation by the fraternal community of the faithful in the penitential celebration is a great help for the act of personal conversion, nevertheless, in the final analysis. And this is an indictment of all stupid penance services where it's like, we're just going to say the act of contrition together, make it go a little bit quicker. You're like, you can't do that. Listen to this. Nevertheless, in the final analysis, it is necessary that in this act, there should be a pronouncement by the individual himself with the whole depth of his conscience and with the whole of his sense of guilt and trust in God. This is what penance opens us up to the Eucharist because I repent so that I can receive the fullness of whatever graces Christ wants to give me in the Eucharist. But when we do these communal penance services where the priests abuse the sacrament by pulling out these things. Like, yeah, it's great. Like, there's actually a liturgy of penance service. Did you know this? 
You're supposed to stay to the end of penance services. What? Yes. There's readings that are supposed to happen. I knew about there's the readings. A, there's a blessing at the end. It's a whole liturgy. Yeah. It's not just we do these group examinations of conscience and then we all go into the confessional. So this is what I would say to a priest who would say, you know, I'm going to give you, you know, blanket absolution. It's like, no, what you're going to do is your job, your sacred duty that you took vows before God and man to do. And you're going to sit down in that confessional until every person goes to confession because that's why you exist. And if you're not going to do that for the people of God, <laughs> then you're committing mortal sin and you're, you're committing sacrilege to your very priesthood. Like wake okay, I'm I'm getting on a soapbox. What here, about but. a communal penance service for priests? I think that that would be a good no, option. I'm just kidding. A good option. The bishops do it and they're like, if you're only in mortal <laughs> sin, come over here. <laughs> that would be so painful. So painful. Okay, last two. Oh, wait, 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 wait. We're at the 45 minute mark. So we're gonna throw it out to a commercial. Good folks. Before we go to commercial, let me remind you to text four letters, E K S B. To this number, 33777. That's such a holy number. It's very sacred. You will get on our email list, and that way we can stay in touch with you as we explore and experiment with this new seasonal format. We want to make sure that you're uh, always staying informed when new episodes come out, if we do any bonus content or anything that we think you'll be interested in, uh, show notes and all that good stuff. We want you to be on the email list. So text EKSB to 33. 777 and we will put you on that email list all right we'll be right back father mike schmitz and myself wrote a new book called pocket guide to the sacrament of reconciliation if you want to be able to cultivate virtues that oppose your dominant vices avoid the near occasion of sin and cultivate the near occasion of grace then i want to encourage you to check out our book pocket guide to the sacrament of reconciliation at essentialpress.com and amazon.com from all of us here at essential presents i'm father josh johnson we're back. <laughs> we are back. Uh, so we have two paragraphs that we want to go through and in normal Dave and Gomer, uh, <laughs> I almost said normal function, normal, healthy function of Dave and Gomer. We went way too far on the earlier <laughs> paragraphs. It's like drawing the map of the U S you ever heard that joke where they, someone who drew the map of the U S clearly started from the West and went East and they're like, Oh, I only need to do 50. I'll drive big California. And then, oh, that's they, funny. then they cross the Mississippi and they're like, Oh, Oh no. Oh no. <laughs> Damn. Delaware. <laughs> Go or what the What heck? is going on? So now we're coming to the kingly service. So we got the prophetic, the priestly, now the kingly in this weird plot twist. Paragraph 21, the Christian vocation to service and kingship. I love the so the opening phrase. If in the light of this of this attitude of Christ, being a king is truly possible only by being a servant. Then being a servant also demands so much spiritual maturity that it must really be described as being a king. Did you hear that? Oh my God. Like, I mean, we could end the whole podcast on just that note. If in the light of this attitude of Christ, being a king is truly possible only by being a servant, that being a servant also demands so much spiritual maturity that it must really be described as being a king. In order to be able to serve others worthily and effectively, we must be able to master ourselves, possess the virtues that make this mastery possible our sharing in christ's kingly mission his kingly function is closely linked with every sphere of both christian and human morality and this is where he goes into the vocation the call for all of us to have our specific particular 
vocation in Christ Jesus and whether we're called to, and he does, he breaks down the office of bishop, priest, deacon. Then he goes through the religious life and then he goes through the laity and marriage and he goes through this. And so everyone listening, if this is your vocation, one of the practical takeaways can be going through this paragraph 21 and seeing how he views the kingly mission of your vocation, right? This is where we participate. I mean, if you look in the breakdown in the catechism of the sacraments of holy orders and holy matrimony, they are sacraments at the service of the people of God. So this is how you exercise your kingly vocation. I, I think uh, it, it, it needs restating the fact that he, you know, he's clearly identifying king, the kingship that we're supposed to exhibit on earth with service. And I think that, that like, this is a really important thing for us to understand as an evangelist, because we're going to get into the next document uh, in the next episode. And we're going to start talking about the kingdom of God. And, you know, the kingdom of God comes about through mercy through works of mercy you know like i've i always tell people that you know the the works of mercy are the currency of the kingdom and i think like that's how we spread the kingdom like it, it, evangelizing through the works of mercy is a fantastic way to allow the kingdom to be spread on earth and and then to hear right that like to be in service you need to be spiritually mature why because we're not doing social work yeah. we're not we're practicing mercy that yeah. we've received. 75% of Protestant pastors admitting to consuming pornography in the last month. Yeah. Right? So when you see that statistic, you realize, uh, number one, when you step into your vocation, into this kingly role of service, people in leadership positions in the church often feel most imprisoned by their leadership ministry. Right. Right. So they don't feel they have, they feel there's all this pressure. I was listening to, um, in preparation for my talk on pornography for the Sunville youth conference, I found this podcast on pastors overcoming porn addiction or something like that. And they were just literally every week there was uh, different co-hosts and they would talk about all this stuff. And the, the guy that runs it, he just said, it's really important for us to understand that like we shame our leaders for their brokenness, right? We really do. And we limit their ability to be broken. We kind of deny their humanity in we that do, regard. Yeah, of course, yeah. we absolutely do. And there are some levels of brokenness that remove you from leadership. Sure. But there are some that are human weaknesses, faults, sinfulness, that is a part of just being human as leaders, right? But this is one of those things that's like, yeah, we need our leaders to be spiritually mature. And if they're still struggling with the same thing for 10, 15 years, that's a spiritual immaturity that we right. need to we need to bring the grace of Christ in and you as a in your role as king right you need to exercise that maturity being like okay maybe maybe I need to I'm not fulfilling my vocation right. I need to roll out of this like leadership thing so for the sake of my soul yeah I, th I think like when you bring up the the question of pornography like it's it's such a major issue for pastors priests seminarians yeah. right and I think like the maturity aspect is it's been going on for this long. Maybe there's more to it than just me trying my best. Like maybe yeah. I need to go to counseling. Maybe I need yeah. to do like, that's a mature attitude towards yeah. like sin. You know, yeah. it's like a real thing. If it, if you've been addicted for 12 years, it's not going to take you 12 minutes to get past it. Yeah. It's not going to take That'd a nice, really huh? emotional, you know, retreat or conference that'll get you. It might be a catalyst, but it ain't the whole deal. So um, I love this. And this is very important for our conversation here because we're making disciples. That's our goal. This is what the Pope says. It is the community of the disciples 
each of whom in different ways, at times very consciously and consistently, at other times not very consciously and very inconsistently, is following Christ. This also shows the deeply personal aspect and dimension of this society. Oh, a personal relationship of this society in which or which in spite of all the deficiencies of its community life in the human meaning of this word is a community precisely because all the members form it together with Christ himself. At least they bear in their souls, the indelible mark of a Christian. So what we want to do is restore in our kingly service, right? We need to restore this very personal dimension. Like we are following Christ. Sequela Christi, we are following Christ. Christ. That's what it means to be a community of disciples and to have fidelity to our vocation. So going from that and transferring right into the final paragraph, paragraph 22, the mother in whom we trust. At first I thought, oh, it's just, you know, the standard JP2 thing of the last document, always about Mary, but it's really about the church. And yes, he talks about Mary, but he says this, the aim of any service in the church whether the service is apostolic, pastoral, priestly, or Episcopal, is to keep up this dynamic link between the mystery of redemption and every man. Remember when Dave singled out that phrase, the way to every man is man. Like the way of the church is the way of man. If we are aware of this task, then we seem to understand better what it means to say that the church is a mother and also what it means to say that the church always, and particularly and for our time, has a need of a mother. Oh, I love that phrase. <laughs> so when I was doing this, my wife was sitting across from me uh, at coffee this morning when I was going through these pull quotes. And I don't know, we didn't signal it out earlier, but um, in the beginning of the document, he talks about the human dignity and the vocation of every human to, to eternity with Christ is begun in the womb of the mother. And he describes it as under the heart of the mother, right? That beautiful phrase. And then here, he talks about Mary and he says that the church exists under the heart or that the whole mission of redemption existed. He says this, we can say that the mystery of redemption took shape beneath the heart of the Virgin of Nazareth when she pronounced her fiat. Consequently, Mary must be on all the ways for the church's daily life. And that's so beautiful. It's a, it really is an epic way. Like the church is a mother and our, our world today needs a mother. Right when we go through all the problems of humanity, the mechanization of our lives, the consumerization of our culture, excess of having more without being more brutality. Yeah, the brutality. All of this, we need a mother. We need Mary's intercession. Maybe that's why there's all these Marian apparitions now. Like we need a mother. We need a mother. Right. So what he does, he ends above all. I implore Mary, the heavenly mother of the church, to be so good as to devote herself to this prayer of humanity's new advent, meaning the year 2000, together with us who make up the church, that is to say the mystical body of her only son. I, I mean, we need a Pentecost. And Mary was there at that first Pentecost. And so we need, we need Mary's help right now. I love it. So he says, uh, accordingly, we who form today's generation disciples of Christ all wish to unite ourselves with her in a special way. We do so with all our attachment to our ancient tradition and also with the full respect and love for the members of all the Christian communities. We do so at the urging of the deep need of faith, hope, and charity. For if we feel a special need in this difficult and responsible phase of the history of the church and of mankind to turn to Christ, who is the Lord of the church and the Lord of man's history, on account of the mystery of redemption, 
We believe that nobody else can bring us as Mary can into the divine and human dimension of this mystery. Ah, all right. So practical takeaways, what we need to do, I think pulling from this, looking at the document as a whole, number one, make sure you read this document, right? Make sure if you have, if you've just been following along via audio, like it's time to stop, sit down, read the document, take it one chapter at a time, take that chapter with you into the presence of our Lord in the Eucharist and go to confession, unite Eucharist and penance, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand and receive the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. But when you do that, realize the King has a mission for you, right? This kingdom has a mission. It's called the church, right? What, what is the phrase? The, it's not that the, the church has a mission, but the mission of God has a church. Yeah. I like that. I think right. that's really handy, a way of reframing our daily life. So here we are, priest, prophet, King, priestly, Unite your personal sacrifice with the holy sacrifice of the mass, right? Be prepared to receive the Eucharist. Prophetic, speak the truth, understand the gospel, understand it at an intellectual level so that you can believe it more, not so that you can water it down, right? I believe so that I may understand. I understand so that I may believe more, right? And then lastly, I would say just for my personal reflection, have a devotion to Mary, mother of the church, a feast day that Pope Francis started but is very much a part of the church's tradition, like understand her maternal side in the church, right? Mary, the mother of the church, the church as mother. I think those can be powerful ways because in the word of, oh, what's his name? Frank Duff, the founder of the Legion of Mary. Um, he has this great thing. He said through the power, through the overshadowing of the Holy Spirit and the yes of the Virgin Mary, Christ enter the world. And for all of us, for Christ to enter into our worlds, we need the overshadowing of the Holy Spirit and the yes of the Virgin Mary, right? So this Marian image is is of the bride uh, of the bride of Christ and the mother of Christ, saying, "Come, come, Lord Jesus." That's what we want. We want to bring Christ again into our world, right? So for this Annunciation moment, we need to pray, we need to fast, and we need to be in union with our mother, right? Amen. All right, so this has been a three-part series on Redemptor Hominus. We are going to go through, coming up next week, a three-part series on Mission of the Redeemer. We hope you can stay tuned with us. Now, here's my encouragement. Get the document now. Google it. Copy and paste it into a Word document. Slap some sweet, sweet margins on there and take notes because we're going to plow through this together. God bless. God bless. God bless.